Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Adaptation Station podcast. This is your host, Nicole. I'm a former special education teacher and current ABA therapist at a private center. This podcast will be filled with tips and tricks for helping you not only be the best special education teacher you can be in the classroom, but live the best life you can live outside of the classroom as well. After all, I'm all about balance. I hope you guys are excited. Let's jump on in. Hi guys, and welcome to another ABA Roundtable. I'm really excited to have Katie and Kelsey here with me. I'm gonna have them introduce themselves in just a minute, but today we're gonna be talking about ABA supervision. All three of us are working towards becoming BCBAs. If you don't know me, I'm Nicole from Adaptation Station. I taught for six years and I left the classroom in June of 2019 to work at an ABA clinic. And I'm now working towards supervision in the clinic. So I'm in a clinical setting with BCBAs, providing direct therapy and working on supervision as my job. And I'll have Kelsey go next. Hi, I'm Kelsey from Exceptional Elementary. I taught in a classroom for four years and then made the decision at the end of last year to actually go back to grad school. And so I'm currently in the process of getting my master's in special education and also doing an additional endorsement in ABA. And so I'm getting all my supervision. It's a two-year program. Um, Well, hopefully getting all my supervision during those two years and getting all my hours and coursework I need at kind of the same exact time um, as part of my school program. Hey everyone, I'm Katie from Spot on Special Ed, and I, this is my fifth year teaching, my seventh year in education. I was a para for two years before I started teaching, and um, I went back to school concurrently while continuing to work uh, last year, and I am in year two of what is turning out to be a three-year program for me. Um, It's supposed to be a two-year program, but you know, that's how life goes. And I am the, my, I'm part of a grant program at my university called Project ABA Teacher, and that is providing the opportunity for me to also acquire my supervision towards becoming a BCBA uh, while I'm going through the coursework requirements and also while I am teaching. <laughs> And so one thing for people who aren't familiar with the process, in order to become a BCBA, you have to have a master's program and you have to have ABA coursework. Some people will do that together, so they'll get a master's program that encompasses the ABA coursework. I went back and got an endorsement afterwards because I already had my master's, so I just went and took the six classes. So you might hear some people say they're in grad school, you might hear some people say they're just doing coursework, or in my scenario, I finished my coursework two years ago and I'm now just doing the supervision. So all three of us are in really different settings because Kelsey's in more of a research setting, I'm in a clinical setting, and Katie's in a school setting. So our podcast is going to talk about our experiences with supervision. So I'll kind of just put the first question out. What do you guys love most about the way you're getting supervision in your setting right now? Um, Okay, so for me, it's that I have been able to continue working full-time as a teacher I feel really strongly that uh, strong behaviorists are needed in schools in order to provide good services for students. And one of the pitfalls in my area, anyway, I'm in San Antonio, Texas, and one of the pitfalls in my area is that in order really to become a BCBA and go through supervision and acquire the required 
um, hours, you almost have to quit your job teaching in order to do that. Um, and so what I love is that I'm able to acquire the hours for the work that I'm already doing in the classroom. I'm in an early childhood special ed classroom. So my supervisor and I sat down at the beginning of the school year and talked about what types of interventions I'm already providing in the classroom. And turns out teachers provide a lot of ABA um, techniques and interventions in the classroom without even knowing it. So I'm able to count all of that towards my hours. Perfect. And Kelsey, yours looks a little bit different. Yes. And so I'm not in the classroom right now. I'm in school. And I think one of my favorite things about my supervision um, and we actually get it in kind of a variety of ways, which is a nice thing about doing it in school. So we'll do like two internships and those sometimes are university-based placements and other times might be a community-based or a school-based placement, but then we'll also do university-based work throughout the entire two years as well. Um, and so we get lots of experience in lots of different settings and you can somewhat tailor your experiences to what you're interests are. But one thing I really love specifically about our university-based settings is how much contact we have with um, BCBADs, like really true experts that know all things like so much mind-blowing research and are really kind of leading in what they're doing. And so it was certainly a trade-off and I miss my classroom a lot, but it's been really cool to work so closely with PhD students or professors um, or my advisors in settings with kids and be able to get that supervision and feedback from them as well. Absolutely. And that's one thing I really like about my setting. I kind of feel like, and this is the phrase we hear all the time, but in the school I was on an island. So most of the people in my school didn't really care about behavior. They didn't understand behavior and I didn't really have anybody to collaborate with. Whereas in my center, uh, this is everybody's career. I work with a ton of people that are either working towards becoming BCBAs working towards becoming RBTs or some other related field. And so they're all, like I can go out and say, I need to work on a protocol for this. And I have 10 people who are like, oh, I have an idea. And so I find it's really helpful, especially because I struggle with not feeling confident in what I know. And I really like having the reassurance of having like four other people there, like, can you all read this plan and see if it makes sense, if that's how you would approach the problem. And I feel like I, that was my problem in the classroom is, although I took my ABA coursework when I was a teacher, I just didn't have the confidence. Because I think as a teacher, you tend to be a little bit more independent in your supervision. You don't always have someone sitting there saying like, you're doing the right thing. And that wasn't for, like, I couldn't do it. I didn't really trust myself enough to be able to follow that process, which is why I admire Katie being able to do it. Because I feel like, I'd be like, I'm not doing anything for supervision in my classroom because I just would like doubt myself with what I was doing. Yeah, another thing that's kind of cool about um, the, the program I'm a part of is that my supervisor zooms in once a week. And so COVID has actually opened up a whole lot of different opportunities, I think in terms of supervision for a lot of people. Um, and so we are kind of navigating this change of how do you get uh, direct uh, you know, direct contacts with clients. How do you count that in your fieldwork tracker, which I'm sure we're going to go over. Um, but my supervisor will zoom in once a week and I got consent from all of my students' parents. And so she records an hour a week and then we meet after school that day on Zoom again and then discuss and debrief what happened and what we're doing. So I was able to run a functional analysis for 
um, one of my kids and, you know, come up with an intervention protocol. And so I think that's been really cool too, that um, these kids that I've been servicing, all, all of the students I have right now, I also had last year. And it's just so cool to watch them benefit from my contact with a BCBA. Um, and that's been really, really fun to watch also because they're making a lot of progress and it's just fun. That's awesome. And then my follow-up question is, what is one thing that you wish you had more access to in your supervision? So something that maybe you see other people having with their supervision that you don't have and you wish you had. And I can go for it because one that comes out to my mind. One of the hardest things I've had is switching from a school to just a behavior clinic. So there are some clinics that are um, multi-related services. So there might be an OT and LSLP in the building and I don't have that. And I'm so used to when I was in the classroom, if I was working on an FBA, I could walk down the hall to the SLP and say like, I think communication is a big concern here. Can you collaborate? And now it's having to like figure out who is the SLP, setting up a meeting, talking on the phone. I don't have as much access to collaborate with related service providers the way I did in the school. And I really missed that because I find, I feel like it's harder to be on the same page when we're all working in different clinics across the county and we never see each other face to face. Yeah, I I think one thing that um, is different about what I'm doing and COVID again, Katie, like you said, COVID has really changed so much of this because I think a lot of my um, more limited client contact is part of COVID, but going from being in a classroom with kids for eight hours a day and working with them directly all day long, eight hours a day, five days a week, that is not what often my university site looks like. We do um, you know, we're running more targeted one hour long sessions with a kid at a time, more one-on-one. Um, I'm often doing data collection. I'm often doing observation. I'm often watching videos and coding them for data afterwards or doing lit reviews. And so um, it's definitely less direct contact with kids. And when I do have direct contact with kids, I'm more often than not implementing a plan that someone else has written um, rather than like Katie, your experience in the classroom running your own plans for students as well. So that is, I think, something that's just different about doing it in a university-based site. Mm-hmm. I think a, a common kind of thread between me and the other, so the program I'm a part of, there's 12 teachers that are in the program and we're all full-time teachers. And so we meet monthly for a group supervision to kind of commiserate on the challenges and I think one of the biggest challenges has been um, finding the time to do everything it's really I mean anybody that's a teacher or has been a teacher ever in their life will understand that you already feel like you don't have time to do anything and then add supervision on top of that Um, even though a lot of the hours that I'm gaining like a lot of my restricted hours that I'm gaining in the classroom because I'm having direct contact with the clients are, um, you know, like I'm taking care of a lot of my hours, but all of the prep work that goes into supervision has to happen outside of school hours. And so that's like nine, 10 hours a day that I don't get to work on supervision stuff. And that is really, really difficult. Um, So I, I envy those 
that are in programs where they can solely focus on supervision. And it is, like Kelsey said, a trade-off. Um, there are things that are really good about the position I'm in, and then there are things that I wish were different. But I think, I, I don't know, I think we would all agree that you just have to make the best of what program you're in and make it work for you and figure out how you're going to be happy um, in the in the program that you're in. And then if you decide that you can't be happy, then you can start to evaluate other options. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that you probably run into a little bit more, Katie, than Kelsey and I do, and one thing that I wanted to share for any teacher thinking about supervision is you have to be a lot more diligent about what of your teacher work you can count as a supervision activity and what you can't. And that's why it's really important to have a strong relationship with the BCBA because they're going to sign off on your hours. But it's important that all of your supervision work has an analytical component to it and making sure that you can verify that if you're ever audited and be able to defend like, yes, that was related to the work of behavior analysis. And as a teacher, you do way more than that. You're, you know, you are a, a teacher, you're a social skills provider, you're an ABA therapist, you're an SLP and OT. Sometimes you're the mom, sometimes you're the friend, and it's probably hard to figure out what to count and what not to count. Yeah, I think I'm in I'm I'm in a in a position at my school in my district where it, it, it's maybe a little bit easier than if I were, you know, in an inclusion setting, working mm -hmm. with students on more academic skills or um, working, you know, just in a, like a more gen ed environment that would be very difficult i think to determine what is behavior analytic in nature and what's not in the early childhood environment um it's less complicated because most of what i'm doing is um is behavior analytic in nature and then it was just about figuring out um how to track which of my conference periods i was using for things that were behavior analytic and which ones were you know not behavior analytic in nature but the the time that i'm with the kids is mostly um is mostly aba so that has been for me not so much of an issue but i think for others you do have to subtract like when you're out for an art or when you're um you know collaborating with another service provider on something that's not ABA related mm -hmm. you you have to keep track of that but yeah for the most part it's been I think you know thankfully pretty easy for me one thing that I do want to explain to anybody listening to the podcast who doesn't know what we're talking about and we touched on this with the service tracker so I am testing under the fourth task list and I believe both of you are going to test under the fifth task list yeah. So it's a little bit different for us but we all have to accrue on a certain amount of field work hours because I am testing before January 2022, I'll have to accrue 1,500 hours in the end. Both Kelsey and Katie will have to accrue 2,000 hours of supervision in the end. When you hear us say restricted or unrestricted, there's a restriction on how many of your hours can be directly related service. So I can't just go in and work one-on-one -on -one with kids for 1,500 hours and say, I'm ready to sit for the exam. And that's to make sure that I'm spending time learning how to write an FBA, graph data, write protocols, train staff, and all the other things that you have to do when you're a BCBA. So you can't log more than 50% of those hours as direct hours. So that's what we mean when we say restricted. And Katie and I have a lot of restricted hours because we both have full-time jobs where we are providing that service to kids, whereas Kelsey has a lot more unrestricted. So 
Kelsey, I'm actually going to turn it to you first because she and I are the ones who had a DM about that because I count things as restricted that she counts as unrestricted. So I'm going to let her talk about what would be restricted for her and what's not restricted. And then Katie and I will sub in with how it's a little bit different for us. Yes, absolutely. And I am no expert here and I have questions about this all the time, which is where your supervisors really come in handy. Um, I have a responsible supervisor who's kind of overseeing my internships and that's different than the person that is supervising me actually at sites that I'm working on. And so it goes through a lot of BCBAs who know these codes a lot better than I do. But typically, as Nicole explained, like the easiest distinction is restricted hours are one-on-one -on -one service delivery to children. So if you're working on skills training or like behavior programs with kids, that's typically restricted. And then things you're doing not with children that aren't necessarily just like prepping materials for the session are often unrestricted. Um, a lot of data collection. So together, even if you're observing someone else work with kids, but you're taking the data for that, that's usually unrestricted. I'm doing actually a fair amount of research reviews and literature reviews for that'll get presented at um, like ABAI or other conferences. And so anytime I'm reading those articles, a lot of that is unrestricted for my time. And um, I'm also, one thing about my program is I'll actually run my own thesis study. I'll run my own single case design over the summer. And so I'm in the process of designing that right now and you know figuring out everything that goes into that and having meetings weekly with my advisor for that as well. And so a lot of my thesis work is unrestricted. Um, and then just one other thing, not on the unrestricted topic, but just on these hours topic, maybe one benefit of a program this way is that um, I'm actually getting what's called concentrated supervised feed work, which means more of my, not feed work, field work, concentrated supervised field work. And so I am getting 10% of my field work supervised. Half of that is individual supervision. Half of that is group supervision. But that means in the end, I only have to recruit 1,500 hours because we have that extra supervision component where if you're in a program that doesn't provide concentrated supervised field work, you end up having to accrue more hours. Um, so just maybe a difference when you're looking into it about what it is. It, yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, I think that'll come, that's something my supervisor and I have discussed is that, and you can do it like from month to month, like each supervisory period. So like February could be um, like, not concentrated and then March could be concentrated depending on how much of a percentage of your hours have been supervised. Um, and I think that will, I think people should look at that. If they're looking into starting a program, they should look at whether or not they're going to be able to accrue concentrated field work hours because um, 2000 hours is a lot of time. Um, that's, that's a long time that it takes. And there's a cap every month on how many hours you can get, which we haven't mentioned yet. You can accrue up to 130 hours per month and anything over that is not counted. So, um, I mean, I know I'm doing a lot more than 130 hours mm -hmm. a month um, between like work and um, my kind of outpatient and um, internship that I'm doing with uh, you know, a center here in San Antonio, but I think that people should definitely look into whether or not they're going to be able to do concentrated field work because it'll reduce the amount of time it takes you. That's a great point, Katie, because I had ran into that. I 
had, I started my supervision in March and like that very first month, I got 130 hours when we were great. And then the pandemic hit. And then when you look at my fieldwork tracker from May into August, I fell really short, but I can't make it up now. And that was really frustrating because I might be doing more like 180 hours in a month. So like theoretically, I maybe only did 50 hours in June and that's okay, but I can't log more than 130. So no matter what, it was still going to take me until June. I was supposed to be done with supervision in March and it's going to take me until June to be done because it does slow you down. So that's just something to know. So much of it is out of your control. So it's important to stay on top of it, but life is going to happen. And sometimes you just got to be ready to navigate a little bit. And then I just wanted to emphasize what Nicole, you had said earlier about the difference between restricted and unrestricted and why the BACB um, has us accrue a certain percentage of hours that are unrestricted, meaning like kind of all the prep work and the research and the building protocols and all that. And it's because my supervisor um, and the team of supervisors at UTSA where I'm going to school has been really good about explaining this to us, which is that um, BCBAs don't spend the majority of their time in direct contact with clients. Mm -hmm. So you, you can't just spend all your supervision time in direct contact with clients because that's not preparing you for what the, um, the skill set of a BCBA needs to be. You have to be able to do all of the other, you know, front end work that goes into those sessions. Um, and I thought that was such a good thing for them to point out to us. And so I, I wanted to just kind of reemphasize that because um, if, if you really like working with kids and like direct contact with kids is your bread and butter and that's what you really enjoy and you wouldn't enjoy a job where you're not spending a lot of time with kids, being a BCBA probably isn't, um, isn't for you. And not that you never get time with kids, but you're really managing adults and RBTs and making sure that um, things are running smoothly, doing insurance, all of those things. That's um, a great point. And Kelsey, I don't know if you experienced this. That was something that was really hard for me. As Katie said, when you're the teacher, you do everything. It's, it's your show 100%. And so I love working with kids, but I also found that I was really frustrated because I wanted to be the person writing the protocol. I wanted to be the person designing the programs. I wanted to be the person training staff because I, that was my job for six years. And so it was hard for me to figure out, okay, well, do I want to prefer, pursue BCBA and lose that time with clients? But I also was so frustrated that I wasn't the person designing everything. And it took me a while to kind of figure that out. So Kelsey, you also had that experience. And so do you ever have that where you're like, well, I wish I could just go in and do everything. Sometimes, but ours is really so, um, because it's not necessarily a treatment center for kids because kids are coming for a specific research study that they're participating in. Like the protocols are pretty set even before we get them. Most of what we do, this is like another tangent, is actually single case. So we can be responsive to children. We're really careful about our like, kids we enrolled to make sure the study will benefit them but oftentimes like we'll see kids for about an hour and we'll run a couple we'll run like one or two 10-ish minute sessions in that hour but then we'll also have this 40 minute block in between that's not for research and so I just started now but this semester I actually get to like kind of be in charge of that 40 minute in between time and use some of my teaching 
even if I'm not implementing this um, protocol, but it certainly is, it is pretty different um, than it is teaching. And there's a lot more people signing off on what you want to do or what you're thinking about. There's a lot more accountability. Last semester, I worked at our university-based clinic, which actually does provide intervention. It was all through teletherapy, so again, a different experience, but we're put on teams of four master's students and supervised by a BCBA, so it's like everything's a team decision of the five of you, where I'm so used to, in teaching, kind of flying by the seat of my pants often. <laughs> it's like things change at the drop of a hat. You never quite know exactly what you're going to do. You might decide to do something and then 30 seconds later implement it. Um, and it looks pretty different in these more controlled settings. So it has been. I think that's been so hard for me. Is <laughs> the, like, and not that I mind getting other people's opinions about things. I think it's actually a really good thing for us to do and makes us better practitioners. But I'm such a control freak that I really like just being able to do what I want to do. And I think that a, a hard thing has been saying like, I need to get my supervisor to sign off on this. I need her opinion before and like retraining my brain to think that way so that I'm not just making decisions without making sure that, you know, they're research and evidence-based. I think mm -hmm. it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's um, it's hard to try and like mm -hmm. get that that feedback and approval from other people when you're used to I mean in special ed especially like mm -hmm. nobody really cares what you do as long as you're not making waves right like as long as you're not causing legal issues like as long as you're not like not providing services to students if parents are happy and nobody's complaining nobody bothers you Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's such a mind shift to kind of switch to, okay, I need to ask so-and-so if this is okay. Yes. I actually, oh, go ahead, Kelsey. So I think knowing that I would probably really, really struggle with that was part of the reason I wanted to do full-time school because it's easier for me to, it's been easier for me to make that mindset shift because I'm in the role of as a master's student. We do have a lot of responsibility and we also at the same time don't have a lot of responsibility, but either way, it feels so different than a classroom or a center because we're not working with kids one-on-one -on -one for multiple hours a day or in small groups or large groups or any of that. And so I think I just knew personally, like my personality is so like that, that I wanted the chance to do school full time, to just like fully dive into this role of two years, learner hat, a hundred percent. I'm gonna soak up everything I can from someone else. Um, it's been easier for my brain to make that transition. And that, that was, I think, how I knew full a full-time program with school was gonna be like a better fit for me. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever shared this because it's embarrassing, but I will share it now. I have talked about how I followed one of my students to my center. That's how I found my job. And I stopped teaching. I think like my last day of teaching was June 16th and I started at the center on June 19th. So there was like no time for me to switch my, my mindset. Within the first week, I saw another staff member respond to my student in a not appropriate way. And I corrected her like she was my TA. <laughs> but in that setting, I was a therapist just like her, and that was not my right. So she doesn't know my name, 
She doesn't know my background and I'm here telling her she's doing something wrong. Needless to say, we got off to a rocky start and it kind of made it hard at the center because it was a very much like a burn moment of like, get back in your lane. We don't know who you are and we've been working with him for two years at the center. And that was hard for me, really hard for me to learn that like, that's not only not my responsibility, but it's not appropriate for me anymore to just go in and make decisions because I'm not his BCBA, even though I was his teacher. And so although I love how I found my job, I did just want to caution anybody because sometimes I get people who are like, oh, I have the BCBA. I want to go work for her. It can be really hard to take your own student and then have them in a different context. So that's just something to be aware of. It's fine now that therapist and I are good friends, but it was rocky for me to kind of learn my place. Like a hard way to learn a lesson, right? And I think we've, we've all been there where we're like, oh, foot and mouth syndrome. And Mm -hmm. like, you wish you could just go back and not say whatever it is that you had said. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that's all part of growing into the BCBAs that we're going to be. And I don't know, I think such a large portion of my supervision has been kind of realizing how important it is to have some humility and to acknowledge that, um, you know, that I don't know everything and that's okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's a different, it's a different mindset than being a teacher for sure. Like there's a lot of similarities, but there's also like this whole mind shift that we're talking about is part of that is acknowledging that you don't have to know everything like you can go and talk to somebody else whereas like in the classroom I definitely feel especially in the classrooms I've been in where I have paras like I do need to know so that I can tell other people what to do um but yeah it's it's a very hard it's a hard mind shift to Mm -hmm. to make I forgot what the original question of this (laughs) was I'm I'm not sure there was a question. I might have just shared a story, to be honest. Um, There is one more question that I got asked. I'll go ahead and answer the question overall now, but then I figured it can kind of lead us into the next part. I had somebody ask me if you can only go on and work as a BCBA in the setting you got supervision in, and I thought that was a great question, and that's not the case. I am getting my supervision in a center, but I could go and be a BCBA in a school system if I wanted to. Now, I would have a higher, Katie would have the highest chance of getting hired as a BCBA in a school system because she currently is teaching. Kelsey and I would probably still have a pretty good chance because we have experience as a teacher. All three of us would get a job as a BCBA for a school system before a BCBA who had never been in a school system before. But the certification is good no matter what. So you just, you get your hours however you get your hours. And once you become a BCBA, you can go on to work in any industry. That being said, where do you guys think you're going to go once you become BCBAs? I'll go first because I want to give kind of a caveat to what you just said, which is that the ethics, the BCBA ethics code requires us to consider our scope of competence before we accept any sort of job or clients. And so, yes, what you said is completely accurate. Like I could go and work in a center. I could go and work in a research setting. Um, however, we all have to ask ourselves whether, like, are we the best person for that job? 
um, and not just, is that something that I would like to do? Because ultimately our responsibility is to the clients that we serve. And like, especially in the scenario that you gave when you're going into the school district, like say somebody is being supervised in a clinical setting and they've never been in the school before, they've never been a teacher. Um, the school district that they interview at has no responsibility to abide by the BCBA ethics code, but they do. Mm -hmm. And so they like people that are BCBAs have to really think about whether jobs are within their scope of competence. And I think it's important to point that out because um, that's something that I've been speaking with my supervisor a lot about that like, I, I think I would like to leave the school setting eventually, but that's gonna have to be probably a gradual transition for me and not um, jumping into the deep end of a clinical setting because I don't have a whole lot of experience. Um, and then just being honest about wherever, wherever I land, being honest with those people about like what my experience is and making sure that I'm not taking on too much that I don't have the capacity to fulfill. Like you don't want to make promises that you can't keep. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think I would eventually like to leave the school setting just because it's, it's a lot. And um, unless something really changes, especially in the area I'm in, like I would only receive a very minimal stipend for my master's degree and no additional compensation for my BCBA certificate. And so it really doesn't make sense for me to stay in the school setting. Um, and like my district serves like 100,000 students and we have one position of a BCBA. Like there are more BCBAs that work for the district, but they're not working in the capacity of BCBAs. They're working as teachers. So, Ethically, it would be hard for me to accept a position as a BCBA unless the caseload was much, much, much smaller. <laughs> Nicely <Yeah>. said. <laughs> it is an ever-changing field, that's for sure, Katie. I um, would ideally like to end up back in the school setting. I'm actually not sure that I'll even work as a BCBA when I'm done. I know I'll sit for my exams, um, you know, hopefully pass, hopefully get licensed. I would love to work in some kind of teacher training intervention role. Um, but as Katie said, like it really depends district to district who they have doing teacher kind of support. I would love to be in a role supporting other special education teachers in some way would be like a dream job. Um, some districts have BCBAs doing that. Other districts have just coaches doing that. And I think either way, the skills I'm learning in my program now are going to be so useful and helpful even if I land outside of a like school-based BCBA job just because there are a lot of considerations for those with caseload numbers and ethics and scope of competence and all of those things and I love that you made that point um so we'll just see where I end up I think also another reason I did choose my like to leave the classroom and do a full-time program is because it feels in some ways similar to how a teacher training program works where you get a lot of experience in a lot of different settings and so I actually get placement in different sites so like I can do one clinic with you know really young children and then maybe a clinic with school-age children or even older students or high schoolers do some home-based family counseling 
um, do hopefully in maybe one semester some school-based work as well. So I um, certainly will not consider myself competent in every single one of those areas, but it's been nice to get some exposure to a lot of different areas um, as well throughout this experience. And we'll just see where I end up. I truly have no idea. It feels so far away, even though it's 14 months, so it'll be here very soon. I know. I know. It's crazy, and I think it's just going to fly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It will. <laughs> <laughs> And I definitely want to stay in my clinic setting. So I'll be sitting for the boards this summer. And one thing, a lot of states require you to be a licensed behavior analyst as well. And people don't realize that. So you can't necessarily just pass your BCBA exam and then start working as a BCBA the next day. There is a process. So at my center, I will start a program. They call our BCBAs consultants. So that's just the term that's used. So I'll start a consultant and training process. And so that's when I basically, the best way I can describe that is it's like being like a student teacher in your practicum. Like you're right there with the BCBA. You're doing every single thing. I might be given a case. So I might be like a BCBA, but my BCBA is the one actually like observing everything I do. So like I'll write my first insurance report. She will check it before I'm allowed to send it. I will do... Uh, family training, but she'll be on the Zoom call with me, that kind of thing. As I work on getting any other licenses that Virginia requires and getting everything up to date, and then I'll move on to be a BCBA at my center. And I'm often asked if I want to go back to the classroom or to the school system, and I do not. That chapter of my life is definitely closed, and I'm actually going to do a whole other podcast about um, why I left teaching, but it's just, I feel like I've really found a much better fit for what I'm interested in in my clinic. So yeah, hopefully within the year, I'll be a BCB at my clinic. I did. That kind of makes me, since I have you here, <laughs> um, I'll ask you a question myself, which is something I've really been wondering. Um, the work-life balance between being a teacher and between just being like at a clinic setting and I know that you're part-time at your clinic now, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But do you think that even when you go, or if you go full-time, do you think the work-life balance will still be better than being a teacher? I think it will be. I don't know for sure, but I think it will be better. And I think for me, a big reason why I didn't like teaching, and you might not have this experience as much, but I taught uh, grades three to five, and in Virginia, they are still pretty heavy on adapted academics at that time. So I was spending a lot of time adapting a unit on famous explorers to teach in my social studies lesson because I was required to do that. And I had no passion for that, no drive. And so I feel like I spent so much of my time doing things that I didn't see the value in. And that made it really, really hard for me to stay motivated. Whereas now, although I might still have a lot of at-home work as a BCBA, it's work that I want to be doing and it's work that I see the value in. So I think it's going to, I'm going to be more motivated to do it and I'll enjoy doing it more. And that will help me have more of a balance. Cause I just remember like, I don't even understand why I'm adapting my lesson for tomorrow. I don't understand why I'm teaching it. And so that really made it hard for me as a teacher. Katie has some dogs, so she's muting for a second. So Kelsey, talking in that research setting, do you think, what kind of careers would be, because like some BCBAs, 
never go work in a school or a clinic. They spend their whole life doing research. Can you talk any bit about like what that looks like or what that kind of job would be? Yeah, that's a good question because I actually don't think I know of any BCBAs that are hired at our university in research settings. It's often PhD students who have their BCBAs conducting research or like the, the principal investigators on projects who are like kind of the major people in charge of a research project. They're actually often PhDs who they've already had their PhD. They're um, like postdocs who are now doing that full time. I do though, uh, this I'm gonna sound like <laughs> not, uh, I don't know nearly as much. There's a lot that goes on at our university and it's actually kind of funky because our special education site is actually like in some ways mixed with the um, Vanderbilt Hospital. And so sometimes things are housed on the medical center side and sometimes things are housed on the education side. And there is overlap with students we serve, but not all the time. And I do know that there are BCBAs that work um, for like the medical side and treatment. And then I also know we have a um, separate thing that's called triad. I should know what that stands for and I do not, but they do research and training and consulting throughout the whole state. Um, but oftentimes it's not necessary. And they employ BCBAs that work and they're employed by Vanderbilt or by Triad, which is housed at Vanderbilt at our site. That's sometimes an internship placement for some of us. Um, and there are research projects that come out of Triad. But again, there's just so much sometimes going on that I am not, I've only been there for a semester, so I'm not sure. Um, but it probably looks the most similar to what consulting at a nonprofit looks like. Like they're providing services to kids, providing services to teachers, and then just through the nature of the services that they're providing and the things that they're doing, they believe it's stuff that is, you know, publishable, like is able to be published for research. So it looks less probably like what you think of in research and probably more like what you would think of as consulting maybe at more of a nonprofit. And then oftentimes they will have studies going on at the same time that they can use. Absolutely. And I don't think people realize, but you can be a BCBA and never work with individuals with special needs at all. In fact, there are a lot of people who are criminal behavior analysts and they go on to be BCBAs and analyze criminal behavior at like a high, like, federal level. And so they have this same, you know, whether or not you're looking at a child or an adult who has a behavior that needs to be intervened, that ABC antecedent behavior consequence model applies in a lot of different settings for a lot of different people. So there are BCBAs who have very different career paths. None of us are pursuing that, so we don't necessarily have any information to share about that. But BCBA is much more than just sitting in a room with a five-year-old with autism, working on flashcards. It's a huge field with a lot of different avenues and opportunities. And I think it's important to think about when you consider a program, like see where it's housed in the university, like we're housed in the education department, but at other schools, it's in the psych department and based on kind of where it falls is gonna tell you a lot about the experiences you're gonna get and kind of what you'll, what you'll be learning. Yes, yeah, so my, um, my MA is going to be in educational psychology, so it's kind of like a mixture of both, and it's been really interesting because part of my program was like learning about the other avenues that you can take as a BCBA, and there's things like even 
things that you wouldn't necessarily think of as like behavior related, things like city planning and um, like intervening, like consulting for companies that want to increase um, task completion in their workers. So like making sure that things are getting, you know, like on an assembly line getting completed correctly. These CBAs can consult on that and, you know, come up with interventions on a larger scale than just individual. And, um, you know, like, I think an example that my professor in that class used was Disney World. Um, there's a lot of antecedent interventions at Disney World that cause certain types of behavior. And that was maybe not necessarily planned by a BCBA, but we can look at it now and realize that that's behavior analytic in nature. Things like trash cans being, um, you know, placed in certain locations, making sure that um, staff members are trained to, you know, pick things up when they see them. All those types of things are behavior analytic in nature. And then how can we take that and apply it to other companies and other um, environments to increase the behaviors that we want to see um, from the staff as a whole? So it's, yeah, it's been really interesting to see, um, to see and learn about all the different things that you can do with the BCBA. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting. Absolutely. I'm glad you pointed that out too, because I hadn't heard that, but as soon as you started explaining it, I was like, oh yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. So those are all the questions I had, but did either one of you have anything else you wanted to share on the podcast? I don't think so. People can always, I know, DM me if they've got questions. I'm happy to talk about it. I won't speak for Katie, but I'm sure you are as well. Yeah, me too. I mean, I can be somewhat sporadic and responding just because of my schedule, but I get to it when I can. And I'm trying to be better about setting um, boundaries, which has been a really important thing. And I'm sure all of us can, um, can kind of attest to how that's impacted us in supervision, but like setting boundaries for my time and making sure that I'm still carving out time to do things that I really, really enjoy that have nothing to do with teaching and nothing to do with behavior analysis <laughs> um, has been really important for me. And so people can always reach out. And I think finding support has been such a blessing for me. Yeah, I've, I've found several people here on Instagram that are like kind of doing the same thing that I'm doing, like you guys, and then also people that are already BCBAs. And it's just so nice to be able to pick the brains of people that are in the field that aren't like responsible for my supervision, because I feel I feel pressure when I'm talking to my supervisor, like I want it to seem like, like I know what's going on. And then she's been my professor for one of my classes. So if it's anything related to single case studies, I'm like, I can't ask her that. She's going to think I wasn't paying attention in class. <laughs> but I was. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, I think for the people that really have a heart for making the difference in the lives of students and clients, it's a good path, but it's not an easy one. By any means, I apologize for my dogs. Um, it's, it's, it's not an easy one, and it definitely, I think, is designed to be that way mm -hmm. for a reason. Well, thank you so much for both of you coming on to the podcast, and I'll have all of their social media information linked in the show notes if you guys want to check them out. Sounds good.
Bye. <laughs>